text here in Hosea. We are in chapter 13. If you'll turn there with me. Uh, we're nearing very near the end. We probably won't finish chapter 13 this week, uh, but I expect in the next two weeks, we'll probably wrap up the book of Hosea. Um, this morning, however, I just want to introduce the chapter briefly. Uh, you can really divide this particular chapter of Hosea into three sections. Uh, if you're into dividing chapters into sections, we have sort of a summary. God is sort of wrapping up the book. And so we have a summary of the idolatry of Israel, which we've talked about. It feels like at some points ad nauseum. And we're going to review it just briefly again as God reviews it briefly for us. We also have a description of the Lord's chastisement, which we've also talked about. But here it is described again, what, what form it's going to look like. There are some metaphors and some things for us to look at. And then it concludes, and this is what we'll focus on next week, is the relationship of God to Israel. His faithfulness. Really, the clear theme of this particular chapter, uh, and ultimately of the book of Hosea, is the salvation offered uh, to Israel and to all of mankind. Ultimately, we've talked about that gospel thread throughout all of the book, solely provided completely and wholly by God himself. And so that's the focus of this chapter. We want to highlight that as we progress. It'll be more on that next week. But Let's dive in this morning. Uh, one thing I'd ask is we just a uh, little housekeeping that I forgot. Listen, I, I turned off the front lights. These projectors, I mean, I'm thankful that they provide them for us. That's that's huge and it's appreciated. But I turned off the front lights in an attempt to make them more visible for you note takers who like the notes and things. Uh, but if it's too dark, give me some feedback. We, you know. I'm up here and I can see well because I got a light right above me. You guys let me know if it's too dark and all of that stuff. I don't want anybody falling asleep. You know, we'll have to just turn the furnace down, keep it cool in here. Usually not a problem. <laughs> However, just a little housekeeping. Moving on. Okay, let's let's begin reading here in our chapter. Let's read verses one through four. We'll come back and highlight those. That sort of makes up for us the first section. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more and have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding, all of it the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passes away as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor and as the smoke out of the chimney. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. He talks about this trembling. He introduces that when Ephraim, and Ephraim is here used to denote the northern kingdom. It was the largest tribe. We'll also remember from our study as we progress through, that that is the tribe that Jeroboam I was from, the first king of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so that is a reference to that particular kingdom. And, and throughout the book of Hosea, that's typically the case. So he's when Ephraim uh, spoke in the past with trembling, in other words, and that word means with fear, when they spoke with fear, with a reverence and, a, and, and an understanding of who God is, when there was a, a submission to the Lord, in other words, he exalted himself in Israel. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, you could also have turned to Proverbs chapter 1. But in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. When Israel, when Ephraim submitted themselves to the Lord, when they were walking in unison with him, when their service and their understanding of that relationship was in its proper place, they, exalt, they were exalted. They were understood and recognized to be wise. In Proverbs chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment, Proverbs 18, 
And in verse 12, Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. So on the other side of that same coin, here when Ephraim began to worship Baal and fall into something that disposed or displaced God from his proper place in their relationship with him. It says in Hosea that they die. They reap the consequences of that. Here we read a similar theme that those who... Uh, <clears throat> it's on the other page, sorry. Before the destruction, the heart of man is haughty. It is lifted up. And as we saw last week, in some regard, as they were looking, maybe it was two weeks ago, uh, as they were looking at all of the things, there was this clear understanding that I have gotten this. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit more this morning, because here it is in our text. In Luke chapter 14, turn there with me. In Luke 14, Jesus speaks a parable to his audience. And in this parable, and we're going to look at the conclusion of the parable, but in this parable, Jesus says, when you're invited to a wedding, and apparently weddings were a lot bigger deal then, because you're going to have a place to stay. You're going to show up and you're going to stay. And, and he says, when you were invited to the wedding, don't choose the highest room. He says, start in the lowest room, right? They're saving the best rooms for the, the guests of honor. And if you start there, Jesus explains, they'll have to come and ask you to leave and, and move your way down. He says, start at the bottom. And then they'll come and say, hey, no, no, move up. We've got this room for you. And he concludes this uh, in verse 11 of Luke 14. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased. Whoever, uh, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. In other words, we think about ourselves and we understand where we're at in our position. Uh, we don't think that somehow we're worthy. We, we humble ourselves. We put our put ourselves in the Lord's hand and we trust him for all of his provisions, for all of the faithfulnesses that we would expect him to have uh, as we walk in submission to his word, his will and his ways. And like those that we read about in the book of Proverbs, we are exalted. We're understood to have knowledge and wisdom. When, uh, when Solomon was given the opportunity to ask for anything of the Lord, he didn't ask for wealth or fame or prestige. He asked for wisdom so that he might rule the people well. And as a result of his humble request to honor the Lord in the way that he ruled, God granted to him the others. He had prestige. He had wealth. All of those things were provided to him. Now, God may choose to do that with us, or he may choose not to do that with us. It is his choice, and it is his will to lift up or to uh, abase as he desires. But our responsibility is to speak with fear, with reverence and honor, to tremble in our understanding of who God is. Ephraim had clearly exalted themselves and replaced God with themselves in as part of their worship. We saw that last week. Turn with me to James chapter 4, if you will. James chapter 4 and verse 10. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. This is something that God does. You nor I get to choose where our position in the body of Christ happens to be or what area potentially we may serve in. The Lord will direct. And your responsibility and my responsibility before the Lord in that relationship is to submit to the calling that God puts upon us. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift us up. Verses 2 and 3 in Hosea, chapter 13. He says, and I'm just going to reread them for sake of, of our understanding. And now they sin more and more. 
and they have made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. All of them the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passes away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor and as the smoke out of the chimney. We have this discussion about these idols. Here is Ephraim, and they're they're continuing in their sin. God is over and over, as we've talked through the book of Hosea, has sent prophets and those who would correct them, those who would be the word of God to them, saying, turn from your idolatry and return to the faithful God who has never left you. So much so that he would command Hosea in the beginning of this book to marry an adulterous woman, and to name his ch children things that would remind them of the ministry of Hosea and his calling of repentance. And over and over, we find that Israel, as a kingdom, has rejected God's call for repentance. They've continued to sin more and more. And as part of their pagan worship is part of their idolatry, the, the sin and the depravity that has crept into the kingdom and has become normalized has increased greater and greater. We saw just a few weeks ago how they were compared to these two cities over, that were in the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed at the same time. And here they are equated with that degree of sinfulness, of that degree of depravity. This is where God's people have found themselves. And over and over, there's this call of repentance. And they're finding all these idols made by these craftsmen. And I want to just highlight two things that, that that indicates for us, is that it indicates their perceived value of these idols. That they would take the time to develop a craft around fashioning them, and that I would take the time and spend the money, make the investment to go and purchase this, right? It's not This isn't something that I whittled under a tree on my own time. At this point in Israel's idolatry, they're pursuing it with such zeal and vigor that they're paying people to make their idols. And it's become quite profitable. And so they, there's a perceived value here. In Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. I'll turn there and read it to you. Matthew 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there where your, will your heart be also. This is their pursuit. Their money falls where their heart is placed. It should be no surprise to us that this is where things are at. And as we look at society today, as we, well, throughout history, as we look at the fallen, fallenness, sinfulness of mankind, this is something that is true throughout. That where we pursue those things, we begin to make investment. It becomes something that we invest in. Now, we're talking financially, but it may be an investment of other things. It may be an investment of our most valuable commodity, time. And we're wasting and spending time on idols that are that are there. And I'll tell you that there are new idols today that didn't pose themselves that rob us of that time. Whether it's time, whether it's money, whatever it may be, those things that become valuable become where we invest on all fronts. Where our heart is, is where our treasure will follow. Now, my heart is the Lord's, and I would hope that everyone else's heart here is the Lord's, and that would be the sole avenue of our investment. But I also understand that in my fallenness and in my even in my redeemed state in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, being born again, that there is some struggle with sin. And so there are going to be times when we need to evaluate and some some quote-unquote prophet needs to stand and remind us that, listen, where you invest is an indicator of where your heart is. And so as the Holy Spirit, uh, I, I mean, I'm standing here and I'm convicted at the same time. So I'm I'm right there with you. 
as the Holy Spirit convicts us of where we may have invested things as, and letting that be a revealer of where our heart may be in some areas. Just be sensitive to that fact. Secondly, it indicates that these idols are made by men. They're made by men. And it doesn't matter if it's the, the book that we read or the movies that we watch or the things that, that, that we might consume. Those are primarily the idols that steal our time in today's world. Or if it's some other thing that, that would rob and that we would invest in financially, whatever it may be, those things are made by men and they're not conducive necessarily to the edification or the building up of the saints. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that we should prove all things and hold fast that which is good. We, we, we may find redemptive uses for some of those things. However, we want to make sure that we understand that they're made by men. Even if it's a godly man, it's made by man. Turn with me to Psalm 135. Psalm 135, I want to read verses 17 and 18. And a description that we find here in Psalm 135 is of the uh, a description of idols. And this is not an uncommon description from Scripture. But it says, they have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusts in them. So we have these idols that are created by men, whatever they may be. And they're empty. They don't hear your prayers. They can't fulfill your prayers. They can't move with any might or power on your behalf. That's the point. We worship the living God, the God that does, that has existed since before time began, has always been, and is unchanging. Who does hear, who is engaged with his creation. And more than that, is engaged heavily and relationally with his people. And they that worship them, it says, are like them. Deaf and dumb. There's no wisdom. There's no understanding. There's no insight. Sadly, we live in a world that is low on discernment. And spirituality and all these kinds of things may creep in and they tend to be acknowledged in some respects as wise. I, I watched an interesting video and I can tell you who it was all about later offline, but it was a discussion, a presentation, and it was short, maybe five or 10 minutes about, uh, what did they call it? It was, the, the title is what grabbed me because I sort of disagreed with the title on principle, but it was something like the moral imperative of mockery, something along those lines. You know, we tend to view mockery as something that is wrong. And, and I, that's why it drew me in. Okay, why is it a moral imperative that I would mock somebody because I, as I understand scripture, that's not something I should be engaging in as a believer, as a witness of Jesus Christ. So the point of the entire video was, and the presentation was simply this, that we would call out foolishness as foolishness, that we wouldn't let it stand, that we would just, and so this person that was developing this presentation, he's got this whole business model effectively that takes those things to their logical conclusions and how ridiculous it really is. Now, I don't know if the person is a believer, don't know anything about them, but he had a very valid point that we as believers have an imperative to stand upon truth and call out foolishness where it is foolish. So here are these things that people would say, this is wise. Look at this. Oh, this idol over here, whatever it may be, they may not even realize that it's an idol. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, take the opportunity and have the responsibility 
and say, no, that is false. This is truth. This is where we're at. And, and this is the source of truth. It's always been the same and it is unchanging. And you can get one of your own next time you're at a hotel, just open the drawer and take it out. Right? In the word of God. So they are made by men. They're made by these craftsmen. Romans chapter one, let me turn there and read it to you. Romans 1, 22 through 25. Uh, chose this particular passage because it illustrates for us the modernity that this is something that is timeless. This is an ongoing problem. Here it is in, in Paul's day. They're addressing this. Uh, but, but we experience it today. That... Uh, Romans 1, 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the uh, lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That they would take and allow anything to dispose God, the creator, from his position of authority and sovereignty and worship something that he has made. And that's exactly what's happening in Israel. And it has happened since the beginning of time, and it will continue to happen until Jesus' return. We are surrounded by it, and we succumb to it at times ourselves. Now he picks up in verse four, and he makes he begins with this statement: "Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt." Yet even still, right now at this moment, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite Israel's unfaithfulness. God has not changed, right? He stays the same. He, he's never going to give us up. He's never going to let us down. And he's never going to desert us. I see a few chuckles, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, I did. I did. There we go. I thought it was fun. I did the same thing a couple of weeks ago and only one person got it. So I appreciate it. Thanks for the chuckles, guys. But that's the truth, isn't it? That that is exactly who God is and that he, despite their unfaithfulness, never changed. And here's the good news for you and I. And this is part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because God desired to show his love toward mankind. That he didn't wait and say, listen, I'm going to have to let mankind clean themselves up. They're going to have to get some things together. And all of a sudden, at some point, they'll be acceptable. And no, 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 that's not what happened. The God who at the very beginning created mankind for relationship with himself has remained the same. Man in his sinfulness stepped away. Chose something other than their creator. And the rest of scripture is the story of his plan and purpose to redeem us all the way to the pinnacle of redemption where even his creation is redeemed and made new. In Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that, then this is the result. Understanding that God is always for us and not against us. That he is never leaving you. That he is never forsaking us. In Christ, that is the surety that we have. Therefore, this is the takeaway. This is our right response, as it were. So that we may boldly say, now how do we say it? not ashamedly, boldly, boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So when Pat calls me and says, hey, we're going to have a booth at the fair. Do you have anybody that might want to come and help hand out some Bibles and things? We can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I could probably do that. 
That is a witness for Christ. That is an opportunity to engage with my community in an extremely meaningful way. Oh, and by the way, I feel as if, and this is an opinion, that you in this congregation are you not uniquely qualified, but are prepared to do just that sort of thing. We've taken time and we've purposed to be able to stand and give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So when you give them that testament or we hand them that Bible and we have the opportunity and they say, well, what's this all about? Well, gee, that's a, it sounds like, what is the hope that lies within you question to me? You guys can do it. I know you can do it because you've sat in my living room and we've pretended to do it. No excuses. Just saying. This is our appropriate response. I'm also not saying that you are obligated. This is, the Lord needs to direct you, right? I, I'll not push so hard. But in 1 Timothy, one more verse here, 1 Timothy chapter 1 just as a, as a confirmation of the safety that we have in Christ, of everything that we may have. Because when I consider doing something along those lines, and I just have to thank Pat and Charles for the illustration this morning that I didn't really plan on. One of the things that comes to mind in our community is the reputation that we may have. And I bring that up because in a community that is predominantly Mormon, there can be ramifications to you and I as believers as we stand against foolishness and falsehood. That is a reality. Jesus prepared us for that reality. He said, listen, I'm going to tell you all these things. Uh, I believe it's in John chapter 16, so that when they happen, you don't stumble. Right? He's prepared us for that. We understand in this world, you will have trouble. If I'm going to add this myself, if you're doing it right, right? If we're just going with the flow and riding under the, uh, under the radar, we may have less trouble. We're a peculiar people. We should stand out as such. First Timothy chapter one, verse 12, as a means of comfort in this particular topic. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. It is not. Maybe, let me, hold on. Maybe it's 2 Timothy. Yes, it is 2 Timothy chapter 1. I apologize. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It's not up there, but it is in your Bible. For the which cause I also suffer these things. So here is Paul speaking about his witness for Jesus Christ, and he's suffering as a result for it. Nevertheless, he says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Your reputation, your livelihood, whatever it may be, we can safely trust that Jesus Christ protects that. Listen, if I lost my job as a result of whatever witness I may be doing for Jesus Christ, I was looking for a job when I got that one, the Lord will provide. And he'll provide for you in the same way. I'm in the same boat, right? I, I've got to provide for my family, as does every person. Every man, well, that's our responsibility. But I trust the Lord. The Israel, however, is in a place where they are not trusting of the Lord. And despite their unfaithfulness, God has remained faithful to them and has continued to engage them over and over. And even as we've talked about in great length, his imminent chastisement is an engagement with his people in relational ways. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that he only chastens those that he loves. He deals with them as his children because they are his children, and that has not changed. He says... In the conclusion of verse 4, there is no Savior beside me. No Savior beside me. Not only is God the only means of del deliverance for Israel, and consider this, right? He's the only means for deliverance. They've tried. They've made some military alliances. They've, they've kind of 
reneged on some of those alliances and tried to make new ones that they've done in their history here recorded in the book of Hosea. We look at it in first Kings and excuse me, in second Kings as well. We saw what they were trying to do, putting their faith in other things and, and exhausting everything that they had at their hand. The long and the short is this, that no one can deliver them out of God's hand. That he is going to be faithful to what he has told them he's going to do. This is not news. All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, he was warning them, if you do this, this is what will happen. Deuteronomy 32 is a chief reference there. We've been in and out of that chapter dozens of times as we study through Hosea. They are reaping exactly what God said he would give them. But he doesn't leave it there as a, I'm going to chastise you and correct you and he leaves it at this, that I am the only Savior. You, 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 Israel, you're going to go into Assyria. That's a foregone conclusion. It is happening, and we know that it did happen just as God described that it would. And there was no salvation in that until they turned back to him. He told him in Deuteronomy chapter 32 at the same time that, listen, these are the consequences. He also said, but when you turn back to me, I will hear your prayers. He didn't ever remove himself from them. His position, as it were, to his people remained the same, though they had taken steps away from him. The only mechanism for their salvation is going to be God himself and what he has provided. And the same is true for you and I and every man, woman, and child that has ever lived on this planet. That the only mechanism for salvation is that which God has provided, and he did so by taking on flesh himself. In Isaiah chapter 43, let's look at a few references here, because this is not a New Testament concept, as there are those that would erroneously say. This is throughout Scripture. We find the first promise of a Savior all the way back in Genesis. In Isaiah chapter 43, looking forward to this promised deliverer, this promised Savior, verses 11 through 15, I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, I have showed thee, showed, I have showed when there were no strange gods among you, and therefore you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Now just pause there for a moment. He's clearly saying that he's the only God. And he says, you, Israel, are my witness that I am that only God. Because they've experienced firsthand his deliverance, his faithfulness, even the miraculous deliverance from Egypt. Uh, all of those things leading up to that. Right? They're his witnesses. They've seen it. And for you and I as God's people, and we've made this parallel before, that we, the church, would expect in some, some regard, though we don't displace Israel from their special position in God's economy, we are also his people. And as a result of being his people, we would expect that he would operate with us the same, in the same faithfulness, that we can trust him the same. And those are the parallels and the applications that we're making this morning. But in addition to that, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have tasted and seen that here it is, my absolute need for a Savior and God's ultimate and final provision in his son, Jesus Christ. And we are his witnesses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to the world around us. Jesus, before leaving the earth, said, listen, I'm going to give you a commission. This is one of the things that we as all believers should be engaged in, is telling others about Jesus Christ, making disciples. Second Corinthians chapter 5 tells us we are ambassadors. That though our permanent abode, as it were, is with Christ in the heavenlies, that's where our life is hid, according to the book of Corinthians. We're here in this world as his ambassadors from somewhere else, pilgrims in a strange land, as we read in other places, right? 
This is what we represent. We are his witnesses to those around us. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are uniquely qualified to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Verse 13, he says in Isaiah 43, Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver you out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? He's not asking permission to do any of this. This is his plan and his purpose, and this is what will happen. There is no other savior. There's no other option for Israel to turn to. There's no other option for you or I or any other person to turn to. In Isaiah 45, just a page or two over, verses 21 through 25, very much the same sentiment. Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. So on and so forth. In Acts chapter 4, as Peter is there at Pentecost, after Pentecost, preaching to the crowds, he says, there is none other name under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved. Acts 4.12. He is the Savior. Our job, our, our opportunity, the blessing that we experience is to be able to point people to him, to tell them about him, to share truth as a means of conviction. Verse 5, Hosea chapter 13, verse 5. He says, I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. In the previous verse, he said, I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt. Since Exodus chapter 2 and verse 25, where God hears the cries of his people who have been in bondage for 400 years now, just as he told Abraham they would be, he calls them out. And as he protects them and provides for them in the wilderness, so much so that nothing wears out, uh, which remember that they're in the wilderness because of their lack of trust. They had the opportunity to leave Egypt and go into the promised land. They sent in the 12 spies. Ten of them said, listen, there's giants. There's all kinds of problems. We shouldn't go in there. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, faithful Joshua and faithful Caleb said, no, doesn't matter. It is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. It is everything that God promised, and he will be with us. And I stand here looking back at this, and I shake my head. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Why would they think this is a problem? It's easy to cast judgment. It's harder to actually walk by the same faith that Joshua and Caleb exhibited. It's harder to even look, and they're being reminded in Deuteronomy of God's faithfulness. Listen, I provided in the wilderness, because that's what Deuteronomy is, right? It's the retelling of the law. Here's the recounting of what God has done and how he expects us to live to the generation that now gets to go into the promised land. Let's turn there and look at two passages, Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2. You know, the good thing about the Old Testament is that the New Testament tells us what it's for. It says it is for our example. It is for our aid and in our understanding that God, throughout the history of Israel, was using them as his example people. We can understand that God will deal with us in many of the same ways because we're his people. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Verse 7, for the Lord thy God has blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. He knows thy walking through the great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord thy God has been with thee. Thou has lacked nothing. Even in the midst of their uh, complaints and grumbling and moaning, God was faithful. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, turn there with me. Deuteronomy 32, verse 9 and 10.
for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And as we have the very singular privilege and honor of being God's people in Christ, he keeps us as the apple of his eye. Something that he desires to preserve. Now, as we close this morning, I want to go to one more passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me, Deuteronomy 8. In verses 11 through 17. As we look at what Israel has done, ultimately their problem is that they have forgotten who God is and what he has done for them. And they put other things in that same position. Verse 6 of Hosea chapter 13 says, According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they have forgotten me. The danger, the abundance that was provided, even in their corruption, even in their unfaithfulness to the Lord, became a source of pride and ultimately was a downfall for Israel. Now, what I, what I don't want us to understand is that God somehow set them up for failure. That was not the case. And, and we don't want to misunderstand that point. There are those who would take what God has provided today and would abuse it. And it's no different in Israel's day. He, in fact, had warned them that this was a potential problem. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11 says, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and has built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thy has is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, and where there was no water, who brought thee forth out of the rock, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And the result of all that provision, as it were, uh, for lack of a better term, and thou shalt say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand have gotten me this wealth. That they've forgotten what God has provided and done for them. So there are warnings given. God didn't set them up for failure. God was faithful and provided all that was necessary and even an abundance of those things. And as they were multiplied, people stepped away from him. He addresses this in the book of Hosea and Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, early in the book, we, we have this illustration of this adulterous woman. And that being discussion, uh, here he is talking somewhat metaphorically. He says, for their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me bread and my water and my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. In other words, here is Israel going and pursuing all of these false gods or all of these idols looking for that provision. And, and they're ascribing that provision and that faithfulness to these idols and not to the living God. In, he, in, in chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit unto himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars according to the goodness of his land. They have made goodly images. In other words, the more fruitful, the more plenteous everything is, the more they fall into this idolatry. Israel does not recognize God as their sole benefactor in charles dickens great expectations you if anybody's ever read the book right you find early in the book this young man and he ends up helping this listen if you are gonna read this book you might plug your ears okay i don't because we're gonna have to spoil it to make this illustration <laughs> 
but he helps this criminal. Well, this criminal ends up in Australia and becomes a, uh, a sheep magnate, if I'm not mistaken. Right? He grows very wealthy. And because this young man showed him kindness, he becomes this anonymous benefactor. All a benefactor is somebody that's going to take, he provides his trust fund, right? He's providing everything necessary for this kid. And throughout the entire book, you have this interaction and this, this young man, as he's coming into this great expectation uh, of wealth and all of this stuff, he, and, and he ends up in these interactions with people and it must be this person, it must be this person and so on and so forth. And then in the end, it's just this criminal who was over here making money, raising sheep in Australia. That was his sole benefactor. Yet he looked to all of these other things and tried to live in such a way that I would be pleasing to that person or to this person or to that person. And on occasions, he would get these instructions from his benefactor of these things that he would need to do. And some of them to, were odd to him because they were odd. But this guy didn't know that it was odd. For him, it was very normative. And not only that, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Israel, I am your sole benefactor. I'm going to ask you to do some things that are peculiar. I'm going to ask you to live in a way that the world may not recognize or understand. Do you trust me? The things that God provides can become something that we would misappropriate or that would fall into an inappropriate position. You remember in Numbers chapter 21, everybody just shake your head like you know what I'm talking about. Numbers 21, right? Nation of Israel, they're out there in the wilderness, and what happens? Well, they do what they always do. They're complaining. They're grumbling. And what does God do? He sends in fiery serpents. You remember these serpents? He would send them in. They bite you. You die. It was unpleasant the whole time and so they go to moses moses you need to intercede for us on behalf of the lord and so moses does and god says listen moses here's what you do you make a out of bronze you fashion a serpent just like the ones that are coming into the camp put it on a pole and put it on a hill and whenever somebody is bitten by one of these serpents and they just look up there they'll be healed and that's exactly what happened you had to exercise the faith to look to what God had provided to be healed. I mean, this is in John chapter 3, Jesus himself references this particular thing as he's speaking with Nicodemus. This is an illustration and a clear cut one, even used by Jesus Christ himself, of the gospel. What does Israel do with this bronze serpent? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, if you want to put that in your notes, 2 Kings 18, 4. We find that as they are kind of purging Judah, that they have to destroy this serpent because the people have begun to worship it. They're burning incense to this serpent that they have to destroy it because the people have taken what God had provided, something good, and made it an idol. Now, you and I, as believers, there are certain things that may creep in that maybe become an idol. And we have to be watchful for those. It isn't that they are a bad thing, but it becomes and it takes on an inappropriate position in our lives. Here is what Israel has done. Everything that God has provided, the promised land, the faithfulness, all of those things, we have put it and we've, we've allowed it to become in an inappropriate place in our life. And therefore, we've walked away from the Lord. We fall into idolatry as a result of it. There's only one right response. There's only one right response to what God has provided for us. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, as we close this morning, I want to read this verse. Romans 12, 1. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but I want to reiterate it. Because for us, as we see the hand of God, as we see his faithfulness, as we see everything coming together to bring about his plan and purpose and will, our right response is what we would read in the first two verses of Romans 12. 
Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. That we would give everything to the Lord. That we would serve him. We would, as Jesus would put it, seek his kingdom first. That we would walk as those who would be worshipers of the living God, of Jesus Christ. But he continues on in verse 2, because there's some, and there's some insight for you and I as how we would establish a heart of worship. He says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, my understanding of this verse is this, that, that the transforming of my mind doesn't come from my own thinking. My natural estate, uh, apart from Jesus Christ, is enmity to be an enemy of God, not to think about things the way he thinks about them. So I have to have some mechanism that's going to transfer my mind, and thankfully God has provided it. John, Jesus would say in John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is true. If you and I want to have our mind transformed, we want to think about things the way God thinks about them, which is part of our spiritual warfare. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That we're going to have to be engaged in the word. And that as we engage with the word, not only is it simply a reading and an understanding, but it is a study. It is a letting the word of God come in and change us, letting it dwell in us richly, as Paul would write that we would look into it, and as we encounter it, even on a morning like this at church, and it addresses something, and there is some conviction of the Holy Spirit, that we would respond to that, not only in thanksgiving, but Lord, grant me grace that I might serve you acceptably, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12. Worship is our right response. Discipleship to Jesus Christ is our right response. Let's close in prayer and then we'll worship this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. We praise you for your word and we thank you for the transformative power that it has in our lives. And God, I pray that as we have opportunity, Lord, to uh, sit under the conviction of your spirit, Lord, that you have led us in truth. And, and Lord, I pray that you would uh, bridge any gaps or correct any statements this morning by your spirit. God, that we would be sensitive to those things and that we would repent as your word has said. Knowing, Lord, that you are willing and desirous that we would repent and turn to you. And in the midst of that, Lord, willing to forgive as well. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. We pray for your grace that we might serve you acceptably, that we might be those who are faithful disciples, worshipers of the true and living God. Help us, Lord, to be a consistent witness in word and in deed. And Father, this morning as we have opportunity to praise you, to sing, uh, Lord, uh, adoration and praise for who you are and all that you've done, God, I pray that it would be the offering of our lips. We ask this now, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.